as we are all very much aware, today in America, Mother's Day, the one day that is set aside to honor, to celebrate, to commend, encourage, and remember our moms in a very special way. But why does the world do that? Think about that. Why do we do that? Are all of the great and continual and personal sacrifices that our mothers made and make for us as their children, are those only worth remembering on one day a year? Are those only worth commending or saying thank you for in just one day out of 365? Really? That's something we should do every day. And it's not just about mothers or fathers and, and those sorts of things that we do this. Sadly, and, and even worse, a lot of the world only celebrates what they consider, it's not even biblical, but what they consider to be the resurrection of Jesus one day a year on Easter. Now, this isn't a doctrinal sermon on, on that issue, okay? But I am so grateful, and my God is so much bigger. Can't celebrate him just one day a year. He's a lot bigger than that. He deserves a lot more celebration. So I'm so grateful that we get to celebrate and memorialize and remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. We should do it every day, yes, but in a very special way, once a week, on the first day of the week, according to the scripture. And, and that, that kind of leads to this idea of, of remembering and, and celebrating and commending and those sorts of things. You see, America has this habit of picking one day a year to honor or remember or celebrate certain people, such as mothers, fathers, veterans, when we should be doing so much more than that. We should be mindful of them and their sacrifices so much more often. We should be celebrating and commemorating and building up and encouraging not only our faithful mothers and fathers, but our spouses, our brothers and sisters in Christ, on much more of a daily basis than we do. We should be doing this on a regular, constant, and consistent basis, letting people know and encouraging them and commending them and celebrating them and their faithfulness to Christ and all they mean to us on, on a daily basis. We should always be commending. Now, you know, we're all concerned about youth. We know the numbers, we probably read articles on youth that grow up in the church and, and then don't stay and all of that sort of thing. And I know I keep going back to this sermon, but it had quite an impact on me. Several years ago, Brother Denny Petrillo's lesson at Affirming the Faith on Philippians 4, and we've talked about that in recent lessons. But one of the things he talked about there was the lack of commending. To put it more bluntly, what he talked about was the negativity. And he said that kids that grow up in an environment of negativity about the church, don't stay in the church. Think about that. He said, he said, if all that our young people hear on the way home is, well, I don't like the way brother so-and-so leads songs. 
Or, well, I don't like the way brother so-and-so prays. Or, I don't like the way brother so-and-so preaches. Or, I don't like the way brother so-and-so does announcements. He said, kids that are brought up in a constant environment of negativity on the way home, by the time they get to be adults and get out on their own at college, they're so negatively juiced up about the church, they don't want anything to do with it. We've already set that tone. He said, we could do something about that. He said, that type of negativity won't hold our kids who've heard negative all the way home. Well, that was the most boring prayer I've ever heard. The song service was dead. Uh, longest sermon, can't he cut it down, whatever. All of these sorts of things. I don't like sister so-and-so's dress, whatever, <laughs> okay? He said, kids, that that's constantly what they hear. They're not gonna stay. And so back to this idea of encouraging, commending each other. This idea is, he wrapped up in Philippians 4.8, a very familiar passage to us of late. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just or pure or lovely or of good report, those things that are virtuous or praiseworthy, meditate on these things and over and over and over. And I know I focused on that last week, but, but again, here's something that Brother Petrillo brought out. He said that word noble, finally, brethren, whatever things are true and noble, that word noble has a lot of different meanings. Listen to them. Honorable. Admirable. Deserving of respect, good, decent, faithful, hardworking. That word noble, when he tells you to concentrate on whatever things are noble, has to do with recognizing and identifying as well and commending those who are worthy of respect within the church, commending one another, focusing, I talked last week about finding those good things in your brethren. That's exactly what that has to do with. In other words, and I, and I know it's in a more general context, whatever is good and whatever is noble, but on a smaller, more specific scale, it has to do with focusing on that which is noble and praiseworthy within each other as well. In other words, Scripture commands us to not only focus on the good in others, but also to commend them for the good we see in them. James 4 and verse 11 James 5 and verse 9 and Colossians 4, 6 say that we are not to speak evil of one another, we are not to grumble against one another, but to let our speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That latter of those three is Colossians 4, 6. And I want you to consider with me again the wording of Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech... Always. What does always mean? It means like maybe our mamas used to tell us, when you open your mouth, can't say something good, don't say anything, right? That, that's what it means. Always. Let your speech always be seasoned, uh, always be with grace. What's grace? Grace is the Greek word cherish, shari. Uh, it means unmerited favor. It means undeserved favor. Let your speech always be with undeserved favor. Let your speech always be giving somebody the benefit of the doubt on steroids is basically what it comes down to. Let your speech always be with grace. Grace about those you're talking about. The next phrase in Colossians 4, 6 is seasoned with salt. What does seasoned with salt mean? You may go to a good steakhouse or a good burger joint. You put salt on it. Why do you put salt on it? 
Well, you put salt on it because it brings out the good flavor. That's the whole point of putting salt on it, right? So our speech, Colossians 4, 6, should always be with plenty of grace for those that we're talking about. It should be seasoned, our speech, in such a way that it brings out the good flavor about those we're talking about, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. Have you ever considered just how many times throughout the scriptures this idea of constantly commending another brother and sister is? Have you ever considered how prominent and often penned a thought this constant encouragement and speaking well of one another's faithful love and service to God was in the Lord's church in the first century. Turn to me to Colossians 4. Let's take a look at this. You know, we know that the early church grew like wildfire. We knew that they went everywhere and preached the word. We've been through this many times. But, but one of the attractive things about the church of the first century, I believe, after studying for this lesson, another one of those attractive things is People wanted to be a part of it for a lot of reasons, obviously because of, of the death, burial, and resurrection, what that meant to them, but also it was a good place to be because people were always commending each other, or at least Paul was. That's what we see here. Let's start with that passage we just discussed, Colossians 4 and verse 6. He said, let your speech always be with grace. We've discussed what that means. Seasoned with salt. We've discussed what that means that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, good old Apostle Paul, after he tells us what to do in verse 6, he launches right into an example of how it's done and how it looks. That the very next verse, he launches right in to how it looks to always have your speech given with grace and seasoned with salt. He shows us how as he echoes the same glowing commendation of Tychicus as he sent to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6.21, he said basically the same thing, but where we're already here in Colossians, we'll just go with this one. Colossians 4, look at verses 7 and 8. He shows you how to do it. He says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now listen. Paul didn't have to write that glowing commendation. He didn't have to. He could have just as easily said, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. Couldn't he? It wasn't a negative comment. It wasn't positive. Just Tychicus is coming. He can tell you all about me. But that isn't what he says. Tychicus. Man, he's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He is a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul, Paul puts it right out there. This, this guy... I want to commend him to you. I want to tell you about him and, and what an awesome Christian he is. And you know, Paul is, is not done, not by a long shot. Paul will go on in this very chapter right here to command in the same glowing terms the example of several other faithful, several other devoted, several other dedicated and hardworking saints by name, by name. He wants everybody to know who these guys are. Look what he says, verse 9. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. 
They have proved to be a comfort to me. He didn't have to put that last clause in there, but he did. He wanted everybody to know. These, these men have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, verse 12, who's one of you, a bondservant of Christ. He puts that right out there. This man has dedicated himself to Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's what defines him. He's a bondservant of Christ. He greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. You know, he could have just gone on in verse 14 to say, Luke and Demas greet you, but that's not what he said. He said, Luke, the beloved physician. Ah, oh, this man is beloved by the brethren. And Demas greet you. Did you notice verse 10? Amongst all these names, did you notice the name in verse 10? Mark, Barnabas' cousin. You recall that it's not always been a good thing between <laughs> Paul and Mark. You'll recall in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, a sharp dispute or dissension arose between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. And Paul said, no, he ain't going. He deserted us before. When the going got rough, he left town. I don't want him with us. But look at what this says now. Paul's not bringing up the bad. Paul's looking at the good. As Brother Shepherd wrote in the Gospel Advocate Commentary on Colossians, the following. There was no bitterness or suspiciousness, no cherishing resentment in Paul's heart. Some men will never trust again a friend or servant who once, under any circumstances, had failed them. But Paul shows a more Christian and wiser disposition. As he bids others to do, so he acts himself forbearing one another and forgiving each other, Colossians 3 and verse 13. Now, he, he had something good to say about Mark. That's the point. He had something good to say about all these other brethren. He is, he is commending them. And, and Paul, Paul wanted everybody else around to know about the qualities in these Christian brothers of his. It, it wasn't just that, he, he wasn't complimenting them to get something out of them. He was genuine and sincere in finding the good in these men and, and emphasizing it. And he didn't want just one church to know, he wanted everybody around to know. He wanted them to know. So he commended these good, hardworking brethren, these fearless brethren, these self-sacrificial brethren to other churches. Look at verse 16. Or in verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. What's he saying? I don't want just this epistle read here. I expect it to be read in other congregations. And he knew that when he wrote these good words focusing on the good in his fellow workers. He knew that this was going to go to other churches. He wanted it to go to other churches. And he commended these brethren. Now let me ask you a question. How would you have felt if you were Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, or some of the others. 
Because this isn't the only place Paul did this. He also did it when he wrote to Philemon in verses 23 through 25 when he said, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greet you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. He said, these are my, my, my fellow prisoners and fellow laborers. Paul was doing this all the time. So how would you have felt if you were one of those men? Now, they didn't do it to be recognized any more than any of us do anything to be recognized. That, that wasn't why these men did it. This was simply who these men were. And Paul publicly commended them and encouraged others to be like them. Now, I'll tell you what, if I'm Aristarchus or Justice or any of these men, and Paul, the apostle, says, man, that guy right there is a great servant, I I'm humbled, wouldn't you be? I mean, I am just totally humbled. Because you know what? Even though I'd be humbled by that, maybe even a little embarrassed, maybe, honestly, you know what? We all need some encouragement sometime, don't we? Wouldn't it be good sometimes if somebody just once in a while said, hey, hey, I saw what you did when I respect that. Man, that, that's, I want to be like that. I want something, something. And I'm convinced this is one of the reasons the first century church grew like it did. In fact, in a spirit of holding these faithful and hard-working brethren up as an example before these other congregations, Colossae as well as Laodicea, on a more widespread scale, isn't that kind of why we come together? One reason we come together is to stir one another up to love, to encourage one another. Isn't that one of the reasons we come together is to commend and encourage and lift up and stir up one another to love and good works? Exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, 24, and 5. Of course it is. And, and wasn't the Apostle Paul doing that by having these letters read in these different congregations? Sure he was. And you know what? <laughs> he didn't stop there. Really, have you ever thought about how often this is seen in the Bible? Just in Paul's epistles. Think about, think about what he had to say about others. He wasn't always, well, you know Mark. No, Mark's useful. Mark's useful to me for ministry. This was an ongoing practice of Paul. Probably one of the things that made him great in the eyes of his fellow co-workers in the kingdom of God, he brought them up. He noticed. He appreciated. He remarked on the hard work and the loving efforts of others. He concentrated on the good things they were doing instead of the bad things they might have done in the past. That, that's an awesome thing. That's an awesome thing. Hence, when he did that, these other brethren's value to himself, to their brethren, and ultimately to God himself. Consider with me just part of this list. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice. Paul praised the example, the service, the sacrifice, and the faithfulness of Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 16 through 18. Watch this. Right in the middle of his epistle to Timothy, he says this. This you know. 
That's 15, 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. I'll tell you what, to be connected to the Apostle Paul when he was a prisoner did not usually mean you were going to have a long life ahead of you. And yet Onesiphorus sought him out, he sought him out zealously and aggressively, and he just wanted to be there to minister to Paul. And so he said, he often refreshed me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Paul was so grateful for this brother. And he said, not only did he seek me out when I was in chains in Rome, but you know, you know all of the service he did for me in Ephesus. You know how he helped me there. What an awesome brother. We see that he once again held up and commended Mark in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11. Again, saying he is useful to me for ministry, John Mark. And Paul commended Timothy many a times to several congregations in writing. We can check out what the divinely inspired apostle wrote as he commended young Timothy to the saints in Philippi, to Rome, and Thessalonica. Turn to me to Philippians 2. Look what he says to our brethren in Philippi in the first century church there about Timothy. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 19, look at this. He said, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. That Timothy, that he is like-minded, he is sincere in his care for you as a Christian brother. I don't have anybody else like him who will really, truly care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord I myself shall also come shortly. He said, man, I'm sending you Timothy. That one you can count on. That, that, that's, that's the guy right there. You know how he took care of me. You know his proven character. I don't even have to tell you about him. Then Paul goes on from there. Verses 25 through 30, he talks about another servant. He just cannot commend his brethren enough. He said, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Man, you could have just said, I'm sending Epaphroditus, but that wasn't good enough. He picked out that man's qualities in Christ, and he said, this is who he is. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. Indeed, he was sick, almost to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow, should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul said, I would have just been buried in sorrow if I'd lost this man. He's that kind of servant, and I need him. He's a good man. Wow, what a Christian. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Paul said, I want you all to receive him and I want you to hold him with esteem. Men like that deserve to be esteemed. What a, what a Christian, what a fellow servant. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You ever wonder sometimes if Paul just kind of 
He kind of told it like it was, softened it up a little around the edges, but he told it like it was. But he said, this man didn't care about his life, he just served. What a, what, that's what Christianity is all about, and he holds him up. One of the other places I mentioned was how Paul commended young Timothy to the church in Rome. That's in Romans 16 and verse 21. Turn over there to Romans 16, I want to show you something else. Once preached a whole sermon on the characters in Romans 16. Romans 16 and verse 21, he not only mentions Timothy as being a fellow worker, he didn't say he was a fellow Christian, he said he was a fellow worker. We know he was a Christian, Paul said, this guy's a worker. Let me tell you what. But this whole chapter, this whole chapter is a chapter that holds up for all the church to see the good qualities in other brothers and sisters. He starts right out in chapter 16 of Romans in verse 1, <clears throat> talking about a devoted and dedicated servant of the Lord through and through, and that was Phoebe. He said, I commend to you, Romans 16, 1, Phoebe, our sister. By the word, by the way, the word, commend there, means I hold up as worthy. It means to teach by combining or comparing, to establish or exhibit. And Paul said, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe. He said, I am holding up as a worthy exhibition of a worker, that, that's what that word meant. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. That woman is a saint. And a sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Paul said, you help her out any way you can. I'm gonna tell you what, that woman is a servant. She has served me, she served many others. I'm holding her up, I'm commending her to you, I'm showing you what, a, what an example she is. And, and Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verses three through five. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now he could have stopped there, he could have just said, greet Priscilla and Aquila, but he doesn't. He wants the church to know who they are. He wants to commend them. He said, I greet them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. He said all the churches of the Gentiles, they know who these people are. And they understand what awesome Christians they are. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. And, and he goes on with all of these people. He talks about laborers and servants, and, and he holds them up, and he wants the church in Rome to know these are the examples of what Christians ought to be. Now let me ask you a question. You suppose these people had faults? You suppose they had faults? If they didn't have faults, they weren't people. That's really what it comes down to, all have sinned, we know that. But Paul's not focused on their, their shortcomings, he's not focused on the mistakes, he's not focused on some of their weaknesses, and, and their he's focused on the good, and he wants everybody to be focused on the good. He commends Timothy again in 1 Thessalonians, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, but not only does he commend him there, but in this same epistle in 1 Thessalonians, the same Apostle Paul who had all these glowing things to say about his brethren, who focused on their good and really commended them and encouraged them and exhorted them because of the good things they were doing. You know what else he did? He said, y'all need to do the same thing. That's Oklahoma text version, y'all need to do the same thing. 
And he said that in this very epistle of 1 Thessalonians. He said that we are to follow that same pattern of constantly encouraging, edifying, recognizing, esteeming, and commending those brethren who are faithful, fruitful, servants, workers, respectable examples of what all Christians ought to be and ought to be living and doing. He said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. He says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And obviously this was in reference to the day of the coming of the Lord and their dead, which he's, he's talked about in the first part of, of this chapter. But he says, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And we urge you brethren to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. We exhort you brethren Warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Do you see it there in verse 15? Is he kind of wraps that up? He says, see, no one renders evil for evil. Sure, there were times that these brethren had problems in the first century. There's times that they had conflict. Yeah, it happens. They were people. But he said, always pursue what is good. Always look for the good, both for yourselves and for others. Because let me tell you what, if you look for the good in others, it'd be good for you. That's how it works. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Why do this? Well, Paul we know, wrote to do it, but, but Paul, why do you do it? Why, why is it that you're always commending the good in your brethren? I'll tell you why. Because that is exactly what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did. Do you know Jesus did that constantly? That's why. Consider with me just a few quick examples. Do you remember the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10? Remember what Jesus said about the Roman centurion's faith? In Matthew 8.10, he said publicly, I assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, he could have focused on the fact this guy was a Gentile. He could have focused on the fact that the Israelites were in subjugation to the Romans. He could have focused on a lot of things. But what did he focus on with that Roman soldier? He said, I haven't seen a faith like this even in all of God's children. Wow. And he commended that man publicly. How about when Jesus publicly commended the Canaanite woman's faith in Matthew 15 and verse 28? Or especially the one that comes to my mind and, and really shows this quality in Jesus. What about what he said of the woman who had done what she could for him before his death in Mark 14 and verse 9 when he said, Assuredly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What did Jesus just do? Now we know that this woman, she had her issues, okay? We know there was a lot of her personality. I mean, Jesus knows the thoughts before we speak them. He, he knew this woman. He knew her in ways that, that mere mortals never could. But what did he focus on? What did he focus on? He found that good in her. And he said, what she's done, 
wherever this gospel is preached and all, here we sat in Shoto, Oklahoma, March 9th, March, really Doug, May 9th, 2021, and what are we talking about? We're talking about this woman from almost 2,000 years ago and the awesome thing she did for Jesus. Why are we talking about it? Because Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached, this good and this woman, I'm gonna make sure the whole world knows. Isn't that an awesome savior? You know what's gonna show up on Judgment Day on yours and my record? You know what's gonna show up? The good stuff. Because the bad stuff's gonna be covered in blood. I use that as an illustration. The bad stuff and the sin is gonna be covered in the blood of Christ and only the good stuff is gonna be there because that's the kind of savior we have. He covers our sin, but he's focused on the good stuff. Isn't this what God did? In Hebrews chapter 11, remember the great heroes of the faith, Hall of Fame, what did God do? Held all of these men and women up as great examples because of the awesome things they had done. Same thing the Apostle Peter did relative to Sylvanus's service and character in 1 Peter 5 and verse 12. Brethren, we need to commend each other all the time. Not fake, not flattery, I can say that word. We need to look for the good in each other and we need to hold one another up as examples. Did you know that as far as my research has found to this point, you may find something different, but unless I have missed something, in Proverbs 27 in verse two, that is the only time in all of scripture as far as I have found where these two words, praise you, do not occur in reference to God. The only time that the phrase praise you occurs in all of the Bible, not in reference to God. You know what it says? Proverbs 27 verse two says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Does God want us to find the good in one another? Absolutely. That is good and proper, it is needed, Colossians 4, 6. So, if God did that, and he did, and if his divinely inspired and hand-picked apostles like Paul did it, and they did, then why don't we do it more often than we do? We, we do it some, why don't we do it more often? Oh, I want you to think about that. We might say, well, I lack opportunity. I lack opportunity to commend others. With all the love in my heart, might I respectfully say there's a Greek word for that and it's baloney. Think about it. Most of our young folks are on social media of some sort or another. Most of them, if they're not on social media, can at least text. Some of our old folks are learning to do that too, but that's another point. How easy is it to just take a moment and think about it, send a text to somebody telling them how much you appreciate their work and service in the church? For example, <clears throat> I want to talk for a minute about Tri-State last week. You know, 
without Kirk and Eric, and I'll just say that, I didn't ask him if I could, but without those two, this, this tri-state thing wouldn't happen. How many maybe sent a text last Sunday night or last Monday telling them how much you appreciate their efforts and their hard work? Tri-state's awesome. Green Valley's awesome. How many maybe got on, young folks got on your social media or got on text and talked to some of your friends, told them what an awesome Sunday night you had last Sunday night when you went to Tri-State. Just let them know how great it was, how wonderful the lesson was, and how grateful you are for the two brothers that are responsible for that happening year after year after year. You made it attractive because you held these, these men up. How, how many of you young folks thanked your parents when you got home and commended them for letting you go? How many of you thanked your mom today that you're being raised in a Christian home? Do we have opportunities to express and hold other people up, do we? And you know, the church made it real easy. We don't even have to spend how much ever now is for a stamp, 55, 52, whatever it is. We don't have to do that. We can send a card without a stamp. Did you know that? Well, yeah, we can do it electronically, but there's a great little mail slot out here, this wooden thing on the wall. How awesome would it be to just maybe drop somebody, maybe your Sunday school teacher, some of you young folks, some of us older folks, just to see somebody, just, just to drop them a note and, and not even have to put a stamp on it and just say, hey, you know what? You're an inspiration to me. You know, when some brother or sister comes to us, a brother or sister comes to us and says the following. Brother so-and-so was talking about you the other night. You know what? That shouldn't be a cause for fear or trepidation. Because if brother so-and-so, who was talking about you the other night, was doing what brother so-and-so ought to have been, then the next words to come out of the mouth of the person who is telling you should cause a humbling gratitude instead of coming from a grumbling attitude. If we're doing what we ought to and, so, and, and a brother comes up and says, hey, I gotta tell you, brother so-and-so was talking about you the other night, you know the next words out of that mouth ought to be good. We ought to fear that. We ought to be humbled by it because it ought to be good because we ought to be doing what God did. We ought to be doing what the apostles did. Why do we wait till somebody dies to send them flowers? Why do we wait till somebody dies to have the preacher say something good about them or ourselves to say something? Why do we do that? Why wouldn't it be so much better? Why don't we tell them now, every day, our spouses, our kids, our parents, whomever, the, the, the leaders, why don't we tell them every day while they can still hear and appreciate both our love and appreciation for them, what they mean to us. Why don't we do that? Should we do that? D don't wait till a person is dead and, and can't hear you tell them. You're an inspiration to me, I love you. Tell them while they can appreciate it and give you a hug. Listen, if any married couple wanted to 
dig deep enough, look long enough, and focus hard enough on finding something negative in their spouse to concentrate on, they would probably find something less than good and positive to say to each other. Is that a fair statement? If you wanted to look hard enough, long enough, and deep enough, you could probably find something in your spouse to say that would be less than positive. Couldn't you? Most people could. We're all only human. But the question is, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you do that? Because it's not only going to hurt them, it's going to wind up hurting you as the problem escalates. Why would you do that? Why do we do that with our brethren? Because the result is the same. Hmm. You know, as husbands and wives, seeing how I brought it up, we should be so focused on our mate's good qualities that it makes others envious of us every time we speak about our spouse. Think about that. As married couples, we should focus on the good in our spouse so much that every time we open our mouth to talk about our spouse, it makes others envious of the relationship we have. Now, the reason I say that twice is because I want it to sink in and I don't want to apply it to the church. Listen, what would it do for evangelism? What would it do if every time we had opened our mouth about the church, this brother, that brother, this sister, that sister, that all we did was said something so good that it made the people around envious of the relationship we have in the church. Do you think that'd do something for evangelism? Tell you right now it would. Tell you right now it would. We got to do this, brethren, because the scripture says and commands that we must commend in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I want to conclude with this. How many of you get these little power for today's? Most of you? Raise your hand so I can see them, please. Most of you? Really ironic. How many of you read today's? Besides you. Okay. This sermon was all ready to be preached tonight. Just, just telling you. And Karen this morning before church read today's power for today. This is the end of my lesson. Listen to this. Pictures may be worth a thousand words, but I can't think of a picture that can tear at one's soul and squash one's spirit as can a few words of ridicule or belittlement. Those who want to hurt you or who are just callous to your well-being need merely speak a word of spite or disparagement in order to crush you. In doing so, they work to undo the person whom God himself has created and cherishes. They prove themselves at war with the God who desires and pursues human flourishing. In stark contrast, God's words to us are those of rescue, words that pronounce mercy, words that convey worthiness. They redeem and encourage. They snatch us out of despair. They transfer us into hope. Even in instances when God chooses the necessity of a judgment, his words exude a restoration beyond that judgment. He doesn't give up on us. His compassion is warm and tender. Thus, when we speak words of kindness, encouragement, mercy, and helpful instruction, we partner with God in the building of life, one actual person 
at a time. If that doesn't summarize the lesson tonight, then I misread it. Brethren, let's make a conscious effort in the days to come to not only look for the good in one another, but tell each other how much we love and appreciate who they are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul did. That's what Paul did. And as we do that and, and our respect is, is verbalized and our love is verbalized, it's going to help us as well to be more bonded to that person. It's going to improve all of our lives. Let's make it a point to do that, whether electronically, personally, however it is we're most comfortable doing it. Let somebody know how much they mean to you every day this next week and watch what happens. Tonight, if you're not a member of the Lord's Church, we'd love to have you baptized into this loving family of Christ. And if you are a member and you need prayers that you will be stronger in reaching out and commending others as God and the apostles did, or prayers for something that you're struggling with, prayers for any reason, we'd love to help you right now as we stand and sing.